So, hello everyone, it's Ali Reza Siadat. I'm your host of today's new episode of Paytech Talk. Today, I'm having two guests with me. I'm having Heidi Navazan. She is Head of Compliance and Regulatory Affairs at Crystal and Nick Smart, Director of Blockchain Intelligence and Data at Crystal. So, Heidi, can you please give us a little bit of insight what you're doing as a Head of Compliance and Regulatory Affairs at Crystal, a little bit for the listeners what Crystal is Hi, Ali Reza. Uh, thank you for uh, hosting us today uh, at your podcast show. Um, yeah, uh, so uh, with Crystal, I'm leading the regulatory efforts and uh, compliance. Uh, Crystal is a blockchain data analytics uh, providing the intelligence and uh, data on various uh, blockchains, uh, you may name it. Uh, from a transaction, know your transaction, uh, know your blockchain, know your counterparty. Um, basically, uh, uh, we work with um, various uh, crypto exchange service providers, law enforcement, uh, governmental agencies, bodies, uh, providing um, you know a full-fledged a crypto compliance service uh, for uh, for the sector. And uh, in this role with Crystal, uh, I do. Uh, um, engage with external bodies, uh, sometimes attending a European Parliament hearings, working uh, with external governmental agencies and uh, national banks, as well as working directly with uh, exchanges and uh, crypto service providers on advising how best we can regulate uh, the digital assets within the European jurisdiction. Thank you, Hedy. Uh, Nick, Explain a little bit to me what you as a director of blockchain intelligence and data are doing. I certainly, uh, thanks for the introduction, uh, Ali Reza. And it's very kind. Thank you much for inviting us on your uh, podcast today. Um, so it's a very nice title, isn't it? Director of blockchain intelligence. What does, uh, what does that actually mean? Well, um, basically, if you for your listeners, the best way to describe it is you imagine the blockchain as... Uh, an aerial photograph, like you're looking down at it from Google Earth, you're looking down on the ground and there are lots of different things on it. There are buildings um, and you're not sure what they are. And the blockchain intelligence team's job is to label those buildings and tell you, okay, this one is the shopping center. This one is, uh, you know, a car park. This one is a hospital. Uh, and to give people the idea of that. So my team's responsible for uh, feeding the database um, of entities that Crystal has uh, and ensuring our data is as accurate as possible so you can say with certainty that that is what you think it is when you're seeing something happening. I think that's probably the best way I can describe uh, how we do things as a, as a team. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Hedy. And the reason why I have invited you today over to our podcast is because today we wanted to talk a little bit what we would need to do as a service provider, like as an exchange or as a bank or someone who's offering crypto-related services or someone who's using crypto for trading or for sending and receiving crypto. Mm -hmm. And not just talking about that and uh, how nice Crystal and Anathena are, but rather to talk about a, a topic which is now very up-to-date. And I would like to talk to you today about the Tornado Cash incident uh, it's rather a bad uh, example of crypto investigation. So for those of you who did not, did not hear about the Tornado Cash incident, so what, what happened right now with Tornado Cash, I would like to go a little bit uh, back uh, to what happened first and look at what happened in respect of OFAC 
listing tornado.cash on its uh, list. So maybe one of you, Hedy, uh, can you explain a little bit what is OFAC, what is the purpose of OFAC, and what happened in respect to Tornado Cash? Uh, sure, Ali Reza. Um, so uh, for those who are uh, following uh, and also new um, uh, for this incident, on 8th uh, August uh, this year, OFAC imposed sanctions on Tornado Cash, basically adding... Uh, 45 addresses in uh, Ethereum and USDC stablecoin to this SDN list. What does that mean? Uh, basically, OFAC as, as the golden rule, if you are in the uh, SDN list, uh, of uh, which is basically specifically uh, designated uh, a national list of OFAC, if you are listed there, it means uh, US persons, uh, anything with US nexus, as we call it in, in the uh, compliance uh, sector, meaning like financial institutions, entities with a US parent company, uh, US individuals, uh, even a dollar related, uh, for example, currency, crypto businesses with a presence in the United States or having their parent company in the United States or they want to operate in the United States must not facilitate transactions uh, for the benefit of sanctioned entities. In this case, Tornado Cash. I would like to highlight this, this type of facilitation, uh, which uh, is prohibited uh, for the Tornado Cash is also directly or indirectly involving that. That makes it very broad and uh, uh, sort of difficult uh, for uh, for the users uh, engaging with Tornado Cash. And uh, the background comes from uh, the fact that um, this sanction came into uh, place uh, by OFAC stating that basically around 1.54 billion in proceeds of crime, um, let's say cyber crime, theft, hacks and fraud have been laundered through um, Tornado Cash. Whereas the total uh, value of around seven uh, billion dollar in crypto assets have been sent through the platform, so it's not uh, the massive, uh, let's say, amount that has been uh, used uh, for the money laundering case. But I think the um, the um, emphasis is on Tornado Cash and why Tornado Cash were added uh, to the SCN list of OFAG is also because it has a link to the money laundered uh, in favor of a Lazarus group, uh, which is a um, um, related to the um, North Korea um, state of a hacking group, that they also used a Tornado Cash um, to launder uh, quite a, a value of, uh, of the assets. Um, it, that that is a bit in a nutshell uh, what uh, sanctions have been in place on uh, Tornado Cash and and a bit of maybe background what is Tornado Cash? Um, it's basic, basic uh, basically Tornado Cash is quite different from it's a mixing service. Uh, it's quite different from traditional mixers. Traditional mixers are uh, centralized uh, mixing uh, services, whereas Tornado Cash operates. A decentralizing uh, through smart contracts. It's basically an open source uh, software project that uses smart contracts uh, to allow users to send assets um, privately on the um, Ethereum um, network. Um, thank you, Eddie. That was very, very in detail. Um, so what is what I understand, usually OFAC and also other bodies who sanction entities, as you said, the duty of entities or persons. So you have natural persons and legal persons. However, in case of Tornado Cash, uh, as I understand, there is no legal person who was put on a sanction list. And this makes it very strange. 
Maybe you, Nick, you can uh, explain a little bit more about how Tornado Cash works. And for those of you who don't know it, uh, Tornado Cash is, uh, in my understanding, uh, a, a rather decentralized um, autonomous organization than a, a central service provider. Even the, the, the funding and also the first production of Tornado Cash protocols was initiated by decentralized participants, such as uh, with the Moloch DAO, which is itself a decentralized autonomous organization, which collected the funds for uh, the first draft of the protocol. Um, but you can maybe explain a little bit more how Tornado Cash works, um, Nick. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I think Hedy's explained some of the differences there between custodial and non-custodial mixes. Um, I think at this point, it's worth raising that this isn't the first time um, the US uh, Office of Foreign Assets and Control has sanctioned a mixing service. If you cast your mind back, uh, they also sanctioned another mixing service uh, uh, earlier this year for similar sort of reasons. But the difference there, as Hedy Rolly said, is a custodial service. Custodial meaning that funds are sent to a central authority and then that central authority takes custody and then is in charge of pushing out the payment on the other side taking its commission in the wake. Whereas the difference with Tornado Cash, as you're already saying, is decentralized, which means that I don't need to send money to any single person. I interact with a line of code, such as you would do, you know, typing in a macro in Excel or, you know, pressing go on a web page, uh, and then something else happens for you. It's very similar in terms of its operation. Um, and, and that's the main difference, really, is that it's a, it's a piece of technology or at least what the proponents of Tornado Cash are saying in its defense is that is a technology rather than a uh, single entity. Thus, it doesn't necessarily meet the bill of what OFAC would traditionally target against. Um, but I think we need to sort of like look back slightly and Hedy sort of alluded to a bit. This is like how we ended up here. Like how did Tornado Cash ended up on uh, a sanctions list in the first place? And Hedy was right in saying, you know, Lazarus Group, uh, they're a North Korean advanced persistence threat group um, they've been responsible for a large amount of cryptocurrency thefts, uh, particularly over the past few months. Some really, really big headline grabbing numbers where they've stolen money. Um, and that's been used or at least could be used to fund North Korea, which is not just on US sanctions lists, but also United Nations sanctions lists because of its uh, nuclear weapons uh, programs. So there's lots of dynamics to sit with inside that. Um, the reality is, though, is, you know, when you look at a mixing service, uh, and you look at the threat actor, you need to look at these two things as different uh, different areas. So on one hand, we have the group itself. So one of the things that I like to talk about when I talk about um, any form of cybercrime group is this idea of things that are easy for the group to change and things are hard for the group to change. Um, there's something called the Cyber Threat Intelligence Pyramid of Pain, uh, you can look it up by, by a chap called Dave Bianco. It was from 2013. It's still one of the most useful graphics you'll find on cyber attacks out there. Uh, and what it basically says is that things inside cyber attacks are easy to change and there's an escalation of difficulty as you go up this pyramid. Uh, and right at the very you know, summit is tactics. And I would argue strongly that for any money laundering group, including cyber groups, uh, payment and how they take payment is a tactic. It just so happened in this case that Tornado Cash was the preferred tactic of uh, this North Korean threat group, where it would steal money and then in order to throw the trail cold, 
and cover its tracks in other forms of laundering that it would cover, uh, you know, through very typical subversion or whatever else. It would use a mixing service to try and block the flow, uh, block the transactions from being determined by a third party. So in terms of the more detail of why that's important is because there was no single entity operating Tornado Cash, because there was no governing body, just a series of people maintaining a code repository, uh, you then get into this scenario of like, well, how do you stop this? You know, and me as a regulator or as an enforcement authority, they're looking for a target. And the easy target is to go after the title of a service. But if you don't fully understand it's, you know, it's like Microsoft Windows. We don't sanction Microsoft Windows as an operating system because it's using cyber attacks or Linux Kali, uh, you know, because that's been used by hackers or whatever else to conduct illicit activity. We don't sanction these things even though we know they're used for bad stuff um, because it's a technology. And unfortunately, Tornado Cash was not necessarily tarred with the same brush. I don't know if that helps you know, sort of you understand, the listeners understand there is, I guess uh, we could probably expand on it a bit more detail. I could talk about how it physically works. Um, but for long and short is you pay money into one side of a, trans uh, a mixing service um, and then a different type of money comes out the other side so uh the best analogy i can have is if you have a bucket full of coins uh, and i put my coin in the bucket i can take a different coin of the same value or slightly less less my fee out the other side and no one will know which coin i put in there in the first place and that's the purpose of a mixing service thank you that was very very good the very good explanation nick so uh, as i understand it also from what you said Hedy. um Tornado Cash uh, was not really promoting to do illegal activities. And even the majority of the users um, did not use Tornado Cash for illegal activities. I saw one uh, graphic showing that uh, it was maximum 30% of all activities on Tornado Cash could have been um, yeah, related to criminal activities, uh, even though we don't really know it. I mean, there's one example which OFAC itself gives Lazarus Group is, was one example and which most likely triggered this whole uh, putting uh, Tornado Cash on a SCN list of OFAC. However, we also have the majority of cases where, for example, uh, Vitalik Buterin uh, used Tornado Cash to send it over to some Ukrainians where he just wanted to protect the recipient of, the, of this donation and not to uh, show the whole world Uh, who's receiving uh, funds. And this is, I think, something which we all should be aware of, that the blockchain in general is very transparent. Everyone can look up a uh, public wallet address and can see what kind of transactions are happening. And for those who do not want to share such uh, personal information, they can use uh, Tornado Cash as a means of just protecting the privacy. Um, would you agree to, to my uh, understanding or, or did I miss something? Uh, absolutely, uh, Ali Reza. It's basically, um, uh, you know, a Tornado Cash or as such type of mixing services, uh, the core uh, fundamentals of them that they exist is basically privacy protocols. Uh, so so uh, there are multiple uh, users of these uh, mixing services uh, for, for privacy reasons, especially uh, crypto native uh, users, especially that those who are, um, you know, have been in this space for uh, <laughs> Uh, from long time ago, uh, the these type of pro privacy protocols are and the usage of Tornado Cash. Also, we have a run analysis on that. It's mainly 
there were users using it for charity uh, reasons, uh, donations uh, in favor of Ukraine against the invasion of Russia, uh, as well as for, for example, you may use privacy protocols for a salary reasons as well. You don't want, uh, you very well highlighted, I think everyone knows uh, this is a, a one of the uh, beautiful elements of blockchain. Everything is transparent. Uh, transactions uh, publicly are available uh, to the public. And uh, they are there forever. Um, uh, you know, uh, we won't uh, we won't be able to modify or change, and we can always see what's going on uh, on blockchain. Because of this feature of blockchain, we also have these privacy protocols for if if I'm receiving my salary, um, you know, uh, in a, a digital asset, I, I may uh, I may prefer to have a, maybe uh, using a mixing service, just not for everyone else to know how much I'm earning. The same if I if um, you know some philanthropist or uh, public figures they want to um, donate uh, or uh, um, be active in charity donations they also may prefer to have uh, to use these privacy protocols or mixing services just not to show how much and to in favor of which charity they are donating and the same that we have uh, used a, a good use of mixing services in favor of donations uh, for Ukraine in the uh, in the recent invasion uh, against Russia and uh, there are um, you know uh, we can go through multiple uh, privacy reasons uh, and and uh, and we should also not forget yes they have been you bad usage of of course uh this mixing service because it it basically making it difficult for the authorities and investigators to track and trace of the flow of the fund uh they have to be fair that is one of the features as well um but uh but we always we also have always talking to the um you know exchanges and crypto businesses uh when they are uh they see like involvement of a mixing service you have to have a risk appetite and uh basically risk-based approach in place mixing services have been always considered as a high risk but does that mean we should ban using a high risk element, um, you know, in a transaction? I think that, that that's the question. Yeah, just want to chip in there as well and add to Hedy's sort of discussion. Um, so, as a service, um, there are some other parallels I would talk about in terms of privacy services for people to be private online. I think most people are getting more aware of how much information they give out about their internet behavior, but still it's fairly um, unknown how much information you give away. Like people have Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and various other social media accounts. And there's a huge amount of data that's shared with those service providers. Um, and I think if people were confront are confronted with the information that they share, they would be, you know, repulsed by it. And in terms of the mixing services, it's, it's as Hedy was saying, it's a way of protecting your financial privacy using this new payment method. Um, looking again at sort of like the parallels, um, if people remember the large Swiss-based uh, email service provider, ProtonMail, has com provided uh, compliance with law enforcement requests uh, based on requests about some sort of uh, terrorism activities or taking place in its platform or whatever else. But we wouldn't say that ProtoMail is, you know, du jour of terrorist groups or cyber criminals, even though it offers encrypted messaging, um, you know, the company is compliant with uh, what's required from its legislators. 
Um, and similarly, you could say the same of uh, virtual private network services. I think if you go on YouTube and then you listen for any video on YouTube for 10 minutes, you'll hear an advertisement for whatever uh, VPN service provider is in, in vogue these days. And people use VPNs to hide themselves on the internet. Uh, now, again, can we be the judges of what they're using that technology for? I don't think so. Um, yet still somehow this particular group have been, this particular technology, sorry, has been, uh, you know, tarred with the same brush and seen as, you know, not privacy respecting, but actually an enabling factor for criminal groups. Uh, I seem to recall a parallel with discussions in the late and early 1990s about internet and encryption um, and how, whereas in the start of the internet era, people were saying, well, encryption is just going to be a free ticket for criminals to do what they like. Whereas now uh, it's seen as a right, you know, and privacy is a big selling point for lots of products like Apple talk about privacy, Google talk about privacy. Everyone's talking about it as a selling point of their products. Uh, maybe we're just at an early stage in that maturity cycle for crypto assets. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, thank you both. So um, what, what I would like to understand a little bit more, um, also maybe the listeners would like to understand, especially those who are in Europe and Germany. So we have now this um, OFAC sanctions, but is Tornado Cash illegal for Europeans or for those who are outside of the US? And what is important to understand for us uh, using Tornado Cash or receiving funds through Tornado Cash or maybe receiving a Tornado Cash coin, uh, what do we need to pay attention to? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good, uh, uh, very valid question. I mean, Ali Reza, especially from, um, so from a regulatory uh, side, basically the uh, sanction imposed by OFAC on the SDN list uh, covers the uh, US persons. So the, the prohibition comes for US persons, but as I mentioned, anything US nexus. And when we say in this space, US nexus, means like if, uh, for example, if uh, there is a, um, you have a uh, entity uh, subsidiary operating in EU, but has a parent company in uh, United States, uh, that entity is considered linked to the U.S. nexus. The same other example, maybe you have a U.S. Um, CEO, <laughs> American CEO. I mean, uh, that is also a, a U.S. nexus. Um, so it, U.S. nexus is quite uh, broad. A any element that you have an American or, um, you know, does not matter that it's in the presence is in the United States, even if it's outside of the United States, it's, yeah, you have a U.S. nexus, um, you are uh, basically obliged to follow OFAC uh, regulation. Uh, and um, and and having said that, as uh, we, as you are as we are operating in a um, you know global financial ecosystem, uh, let's say if you're an exchange uh, with the ambition to be also uh, serving U.S. clients, um, you know if if you're a crypto uh, service provider, uh, let's say you are based uh, in one of the European uh, member states, but uh, you may have uh, you know uh, users. Um, already a resident and registering United States or business you want to expand to United States, you have to, uh, in, a, in a business uh, manner, you have to follow the OFAC um, regulation, else you may not be able to operate uh, uh, within the U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, and that, that is about um, uh, the, uh, let's say, applicability of the uh, U.S. regulation uh, when it comes to the OFAC and sanction regimes. And when it comes to the transactions, um, it, 
on this specific case, uh, I very much like to open uh, up the conversation on uh, dosing attacks. Uh, but but before getting to that, as the as the again a golden rule uh, for transactions uh, and uh, the sanction applicability is that any transaction that has directly or indirectly um, um, you know, have relation to the uh, SDN listed of OFAC uh, must be uh, freeze and block. So that means uh, basically any transaction involving Tornado Cash, uh, ha- ha- but and if the exchanges see that uh, in their platform, they have they have no uh, they have no choice than blocking and freezing uh, the assets and reporting it to the OFAC. That is about the transactions. But what I would like to um, you know, bring the topic back is about, um, as Nick earlier mentioned, it's really about what what really now is uh, a bottleneck here um, versus all the previous sanctions that announced by OFAC is that uh, we have uh, also the technicality applicability of dosing attacks. And and for your listeners of this podcast today, with dosing attacks, um, we mean like if uh, sometimes, uh, let's say, people are the victim of dusting attack aimed at tainting people's wallets. So there, it means like like uh, who for the exchange is a difficult question. Uh, which of their customers willingly using uh, Tornado Cash despite the sanctions? So it it brings a violation, or it has been just a coincidence that the customer are are you know they unwittingly received the funds that that uh, these funds were processed by the tornado cash in in more of an unrelated series of transactions. This is called dosing attack, and Alreza, you earlier mentioned uh, even pu- you know public figures or uh, even celebrities they have been the victim of dosing attack. It's, it's very easy. Let's say if, uh, for example, I don't like a, a DAO, I can just simply have a few Ethereum uh, from Tornado Cash and then see, uh, look at them, see they are struggling. It's very easy. I can just, you know, polluted your wallet address uh, by sending uh, the Ethereum from Tornado Cash. And then what happens to your wallet address? Uh, well, the exchange has the obligation to freeze and block the assets. Um, and then you will have, problems with your let's say um, um, you know um, to, to explain uh, okay I really uh, I really don't know where is that fund coming from I had no um, let's say relation with tornado cash that is that is a um, I think the challenge of dusting attack remains and um, talking about that OFAC released on 13th September a new update on the frequently asked questions regarding the sanctions imposed on tornado cash however I have to Admit they mentioned specifically that uh, the dusting transactions, um, you know, the report obligation stays the same, but it is not the uh, priority of enforcement uh, for OFAC. Meaning, if the exchange are are a bit late reporting of this blocked uh, property or assets of the U.S. persons being the victim of dusting attacks to the OFAC, yeah, it's not the pri- uh, you know, priority of enforcement action, but they still have to do that. Thank you, Hedy. So, gonna, uh, sorry, yeah, Larissa, I was going to pick up there as well, just to be clear on the dusting side of things. And this is not a, a this is not a suggested thing that happened. This has actually happened with Tornado Cash, like actual 
high profile addresses have been dusted, including celebrities such as Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, sorry, not Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, Jimmy Fallon, who probably owns an NFT, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, uh, these have been dusted with funds sent from Coinbase, uh, sorry, from Tornado Cash. Uh, and, you know, it has had implications for them. Uh, you know, this is sort of proves the point of why a mix is necessary. Yes, I mean, thank you both. So what, what I'm taking from here uh, as a German lawyer uh, with some background in sanctions law, so, um, so far, the U.S. OFAC sanctions, they apply to U.S. persons or those who have a nexus to U.S. persons or U.S. activities, but they do not directly apply to Europeans and people who, who live under European law. We even have in, in the European Union an EU Block Institute, which says that uh, U.S. law and U.S. sanctions, they shall not apply to Europeans and those who are living within the European economic area uh, until we do not have the same sanctions here. So we have a case uh, of um, uh, a German-Iranian bank against Deutsche Telekom, which was uh, ruled out by the European Court of Justice, saying that um, even though you, you want to stop uh, a business because of being afraid of uh, US sanctions, you're not allowed to do so, only uh, for the reason that there are US sanctions around. Uh, this makes it very difficult for those who are trying to comply with EU law and US law at the same time, who, like Telekom, are active in Germany and in the US. However, this is the rule uh, how it is. Um, and I think what is very important in that context with Tornado Cash, um, a lack of understanding, a lack of technological understanding, a lack of understanding how blockchain transactions work, uh, and a lack of understanding how um, law and sanctions law applies, uh, I would just look uh, want to look briefly on what could happen if you try to uh, yeah apply that kind of law and a misunderstanding uh, uh, what happened to the uh, open source developer of Tornado Cash. Um, this guy Alexei Petsev, he and his wife they are living in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and Alexei Petsev he himself as the open source developer of um, the Tornado Cash uh, open source protocol. Uh, was sentenced by um, a Dutch court uh, for being under custody for the purpose of investigating into his case to, um, yeah, to 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 sue him for for a case which is so far not clear, and he was just recently uh, his sentence was prolonged for 90 more days, so he's still uh, under Dutch custody and still not uh, sued for a case. Uh, maybe uh, you, Nick, want to start to explain what exactly did the open source developer do here? And do now all open source developers need to be afraid in being targeted by yeah, police or uh, forensics or whoever because of uh, US law or any other law? Um, so I think this is a very peculiar one. Um, so I'm not the most familiar with his case and as you've rightly said it's still fairly nebulous as to what exactly his charge is going to be um with the light of all open source developers i doubt that there is a risk posed to all of them but there is certainly a concern about the precedent amongst the community which if in a regulated position needs to be squashed fairly quickly um, people are concerned about what could happen to them. If I go back to our example, and I think it's an important one to talk about people who develop malware 
or write code that is used to do like network intrusions or cyber type uh, attacks um, under the guise of testing, um, they have no, there's no precedent to my mind of people being arrested for those kind of things. Like you, uh, certainly not in European or US jurisdictions, it's not illegal for me to disclose to a company that there's a bug in its software. And in fact, actively Google and Microsoft and large companies promote uh, this through something called a bug bounty program, as in they promote people looking for holes in their code, um, you know, which is an open source sort of task. Similarly, people make open source products that are allowed to enable cyber crimes or can enable cyber crimes, I should say. Uh, there is always a disclaimer in the code which says this is to be used for research or testing purposes only. But I, I guarantee it's not just used for research and testing purposes. It's a fig leaf for the community to say it's not being used for anything bad. And there are plenty of commercial manufacturers who do this too. So I find it curious as he's held on to these things. What we don't know is why uh, and specifically as to why. So I would say, you know, is it an act against Tornado Cash or is it an act against the individual? Indeed, if it is linked to his work for Tornado Cash, that's a very distressing signal. Um, but uh, a government would seek to crack down on the production of code. Uh, and I would wonder if it's going to be followed up against other types of coding activity that is used for illegal purposes. It's, uh, it, it is very, very strange to me. Um, as I said before, the wider open source community are in some ways the backbone of the internet. You know, most uh, hosted computers these days rely on a version or flavor of, you know, Linux, um, which is an open source product. It, you know, it's run by volunteers, essentially, uh, and obviously there's a foundation that supports it, but it's, it, it's run not by a commercial enterprise, it's run by individuals. So, you know, if this is a move against the open source community for being used for, for creating something that's been used for illicit purposes, then that is a very, very worrying precedent. Um, so I'd really want to know what else do they have to follow on this? Yeah, and I fully agree with you, Nick, but... Um, I think we should stick, try to stick now a little bit more about what we are experts of. I mean, me, myself, an expert on, on legal stuff, you two experts on, on uh, crypto forensics. Um, and uh, I mean, for those who are interested in, 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 the, in the tornado cash and the OFAX topic, uh, they can just look up the news. Uh, as you all know, Coinbase has just recently announced uh, supporting bankrolling the lawsuit against the United States Treasury Department. And there are many people who are really against the sanctioning. And also there are many people who are demonstrating in the Netherlands uh, against uh, putting Alexei Petsev under custody. Uh, but I think we're not in a good position to decide right now whether it's wrong, right or wrong, because it's all too early, even though me personally, uh, I'm strong in favor in saying that uh, you should not put someone under custody if you do not understand the case and you do not understand really this person's in, uh, involvement in the case just for the purpose uh, to, to find out what the case is against him. So, but this, the Dutch, uh, uh, yeah, case uh, court has to take care of. Um, what I would like to, to, to talk to you in the remaining time. So if I would be the user of cryptocurrencies, or let's say I am the, the CEO of a German exchange or bank who wants to do crypto business. So what, what would I need to do to, to make sure that um, the coins uh, my users are trading, receiving, sending uh, are, are legal? And what is if they are using... Um, Tornado Cash or any other mixer service, or if they receive 
coins from the darknet or coins which have history uh, being used in the darknet. Uh, so what, what is the best way forward? Uh, what? Do you want me to take this one ahead of you or are you going to take it? Go ahead. No, I mean, so on an individual user basis, I think the first thing I'll say is, you know, um, don't get involved with darknet marketplaces uh, because that's illegal and, you know, there are serious consequences and societal impacts for using darknet marketplaces. Um, you know, that, that's that's the first uh, thing I would say is that's a... Uh, that would be illegal if you used normal cash. Let's, let's put it that way. So don't use cryptocurrency for anything uh, that is illegal by the laws of the land. Uh, in terms of mixing services, uh, we've already sort of covered a bit about, you know, what the implications to the user might be if you're a European citizen and how you might use one. But what can an individual do to show like, okay, the funds I've got are safe and everything else that comes along with it? Well, There are free tools available. Uh, we have one with Crystal, explorer.crystalblockchain.com. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a link to this uh, in the podcast notes, um, which can you can use to search for your cryptocurrency to see whether or not it's uh, on a high risk or medium risk, and that could be a useful indicator to you. The main advice I would give, though, is to go through a reputable service provider that has a license uh, and regulated credential Uh, which means you know you're getting something right. Uh, when it comes to funds that's tainted from the darknet marketplaces, we don't look as far back as that. We look at the last known location. So if the funds have come from a darknet and gone to illicit regulated exchange and you get coin that's tainted from that, it's the exchange's fault to deal with that. Just as if I was to withdraw an ATM uh, banknote and the banknote had been used in another crime, I wouldn't be responsible for... You know, where it's come from, the bank would be responsible for the sort of the provenance of that currency. So I think that's the main thing to sort of worry, not worry about is, you know, you as an individual user, as long as you go to good places and get currency from reputable sources, you know, you have very little to worry about. It's only when you start treading a different path that you start having to get into these issues, um, which I think you could probably avoid by not doing it. And maybe um, referring um, also, like uh, Nick covered from the individual perspective, a uh, very good uh, guidance and tips. And and I would say, like, I'll raise it from, from you mentioned, like, if you are a CEO of, you know, one of the major exchanges in Germany or a financial institution, um, basically, it, it's it's uh, very, uh, let's say, talking obvious that crypto exchanges, financial institutions, Uh, when it comes to the sanctions, at least, um, you know, they have to make sure that their customers do not withdraw funds to the addresses owned or associated with the sanctioned entities. Um, that is also where that uh, literally the word of directly or indirectly uh, comes into the place. Um, ha having said that, uh, when we talk about a blockchain and crypto exchanges, uh, monitoring and assessing these type of interactions manually is almost impossible. Therefore, um, using of, uh, let's say, blockchain analytics uh, solutions that are available in the market, there are not many of them, handful of them, uh, can assist definitely in detecting addresses controlled by sanctioned uh, uh, parties. And and once uh, these such addresses have been, uh, let's say, uh, identified by the exchanges, they do have the obligation, as we also have it with traditional of uh, 
finance system and the banks, they do have the obligation um, to freeze that asset, block the asset and reporting it to the OFAC, um, you know, and then, of course, having a conversation with the customer um, to know uh, what was the background behind it. However, having said that, this is about a general sanction ruling, right? Uh, but in the case of Tornado Cash, I still would like to emphasize the dusting attacks, and that is really make it difficult uh, for the exchanges. If you want to go through the r- rules and regulations, they have to freeze uh, and block the assets, even when they, um, you know, the user, the client has been the victim of dusting attack. If we want to take the guidance of OFAC, they say that this is not the priority of enforcement, but it is still the requirement. That That's why I would say as an exchange, uh, you better be uh, safe than sorry, you know, like, uh, and, and you have to uh, go uh, by, by law and the regulation in place, which that's, I think, why we have today this conversation about tornado cash. Um, and any decentralized uh, uh, mixing service because of, as, as uh, I think uh, both Alureza, you and Nick uh, very well mapped out, they, these type of uh, decentralized mixing services, they have totally a different uh, technicality uh, features that work very different <laughs> in the markets, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- I mean, this last thing, which we also said again, uh, again, putting this dusting attack as an example, this shows nicely what the difference between uh, a blockchain-related transaction without an intermediary looks like and a payment with an intermediary. I mean, if you would imagine that someone is transferring your money to your bank account uh, and this person is maybe sanctioned or is using a service which is sanctioned, in that case, you as a recipient of receiving this money on your bank account, you could be in the same position as someone in a dusting attack receiving uh, funds through Tornado Cash or through any other sanctioned services or entity. However, the difference is that uh, in, a, in a traditional payment uh, uh, wire transfer scenario, the, the payment service institution like the bank usually would uh, maybe do a check or run a check and do their its own checks uh, and use uh, some, some tools which are also well known for sanction checks and, and other things. However, uh, when you do it through an exchange like a crypto exchange or you do it peer-to-peer, you either are lucky if the exchange is using such services such as Crystal uh, blockchain uh, analytics or the, the, the counterpart is using such services and doing these checks. Uh, and I think this is a nice example where, where we now live in with the in a crypto in a, in a crypto square. Uh, but it, it is like it is. Um, so uh, we talked a lot. I, I think I thank you both a lot for for being today on this podcast. For those of you who are still have questions and uh, want to reach out directly to Hedy and Nick, you can find their both contact details under this podcast text. And for those of you who are around on the 17th of October in Frankfurt, you're able also to meet uh, Hedy and Nick and me, myself. We are going to have a joint event uh, hosted by Blockchain Helix, Helix ID in Frankfurt, just prior to the Crypto Assets Conference, which is taking place in Frankfurt. And we are looking forward to see you there. Once again, thank you, Hedy. Thank you, Nick, for being with me. And thank you, listeners, for listening to us. Thank you, Ali Reza, for hosting us. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Ali Reza. It's been great fun.